Thank you for downloading this Mass Device radio podcast. In this 2011 interview, Mass Device reporter Arzu Sarvastani spoke with Alfred Mann Foundation CEO David Hankin about the foundation and its micro-stimulator program. Thank you for listening to Mass Device Radio. Thank you. Good morning. All right, if you don't mind, give us a little bit of a history of the Alfred Mann Foundation. Sure. The Alfred Mann Foundation was founded in 1985 by uh, Alfred Mann. Uh, Alfred Mann is a serial entrepreneur in the medical and healthcare arena. Uh, Al started our foundation because he had done some work with Johns Hopkins University and some of the national labs and was troubled by the fact that a lot of the extraordinary research that was going on in these, these areas uh, never made it to an intended patient population. So he set out to create a, an organization that could engage in true translational research and uh, leverage uh, great basic science into translational uh, solutions for bad medical problems. All right, so what is your background and how did you come to work in nonprofit medical science? <laughs> it's an interesting question. Uh, I, I am an attorney by uh, background, and uh, this all relates to how I, I ended up at the Alfred Mann Foundation. They were looking uh, about 10, 12 years ago for some expertise in an area that I had some expertise in as an attorney, and uh, was I was asked by uh, the AMF to do some work for them. I did some work for them. thought it would be about an afternoon's worth of uh, project and and, and uh, it ended up turning into a career. So um, two years later, they asked me to, to join them full-time as their general counsel. I did that uh, shortly thereafter. I was asked by the, our board of directors to be chief financial officer and general counsel. And then ultimately in 2007, Al asked me to be the CEO. So uh, tell me about the microstimulator program and how that came to be. Sure. The microstimulator program started with a, a paper that was authored by a gentleman named Bill Heaturks, who was at the National Institutes of Health. And Bill came up with an idea for a, uh, a, a radio frequency powered stimulator that would target specific nerves inside the body. After the paper was drafted and, and published, uh, the National Institutes of Health put out a contract for the development of an RF microstimulator. The three re grant recipients were a member of the Alfred Mann Foundation, a professor at Queens University, and a professor at Illinois Institute of Technology. Uh, it was decided before the project began that all the intellectual property that they developed would uh, be consolidated at the Alfred Mann Foundation so that it could, the uh, program, if, if successful, could be commercialized. Um, this was in the late 1980s. What happened was that the, these guys managed to finish uh, a, a version of the microstimulator. It is a prehistoric version of what we've got today, but it, they did finish, and it did work, and it was viable, but for many design changes, it had to be made over the years. Uh, ultimately, what we decided to do at, in this organization is assume control of the development, add a battery, uh, add significant, significantly greater capabilities, change the casing so that the casing was hermetic, it was strong and solid so it wouldn't break inside the body, and so on. So our, our, our motto very much at the, the foundation is to make sure that we put patient safety first, and there were a lot of things lacking in the initial prehistoric design that would have been uh, you know, unsafe for a patient. So we fixed all those things. So what are some of the things that microstimulators have 
proven to be able to do so far? Well, they haven't really been proven to do anything um, from a, from an FDA or regulatory point of view. So I don't want to. I want to be very careful here to not make any claims that that could be uh, misconstrued. What they they hold potential, and the potential that they hold is to target nerves and muscles in a very direct way. The devices are implanted into the muscle, and they're implanted typically at what's called a motor point, which is where the nerve and the muscle intersect. That motor point is uh, the most sensitive part of the muscle, and, and if, if stimulated with a small electric current, which is what the, the, the microstimulators will do when they, when they stimulate, it, uh, the cause of the stimulation will, uh, uh, the stimulation will cause the muscle to contract. The idea is if you can contract muscles in a coordinated fashion, uh, and, and they're triggered by the muscle contraction is triggered by the body itself, then you have essentially an artificial nervous system. And that's what we're, we're shooting for. Uh, none of this has been proven. Uh, we certainly don't have FDA approval for this yet, but this, uh, we're definitely on our way toward, toward seeking it. So last week, the Federal Communications Commission accepted the Offerman Foundation's petition to allow medical devices to use a particular radio frequency to communicate wirelessly in the body. So what is the significance of that 413 to 457 radio spectrum? The devices themselves, the implants, are, are very, very small. They're a little over an inch long. Um, they're probably less than an eighth of an inch in diameter and, and cylindrical in, in shape. And, and they're meant to be implanted into the body. But they talk wirelessly to a control unit that sits outside the body. And the control unit is programmable by the physician or clinician that is administering the therapy or, or trying to use what's called functional electric stimulation with respect to a uh, patient who's got movement disorder. In order to talk inside and outside the body, the physics of the implant has to be such that um, it can be small, it can last a certain period of time on a, on a single battery charge because the battery is, is rechargeable, um, and so on. Uh, that all dictates that the ideal frequency is between 413 and 4, uh, 457. So it's really a matter of the laws of physics that dictate that is the ideal uh, spectrum. So the Foundation's petition was first filed in 2007, correct? That's correct. So it took about four years to get the green light. So tell us about the decisions leading up to filing the petition and uh, the road to getting to a positive vote. We started working on this really in 2005. We, uh, we went to the FCC and we secured an experimental license to begin to test and, and work in the microstimulator, with the microstimulator in this, in this frequency band. Um, so that's, that's really where the journey began. Uh, there was some activity between 2005 and 2007, primarily talking, you know, having early, early conversations with the Department of Defense and so on. But in 2000, September 2007, we, we filed our petition for rulemaking, and that was really what set this whole process into motion. Um, we received a lot of support at the time of filing. We received very, very little opposition during the pleading stages of the of the petition. But we knew that that that, that what we were going to receive publicly in the FCC proceeding really wasn't the the real mountain that we had to climb. The real mountain we had to climb was really proving to the Department of Defense, which is the incumbent user in the middle two bands uh, that we were seeking, that we could coexist with them 
on a non-harmful interference basis. And what I mean by that is that while there may be interference from us to them or from them to our patients, the, the interference couldn't be harmful to either system so that we could peacefully, peacefully coexist. So that's, that's, that's what we spent a significant amount of time trying to demonstrate. So we did testing directly with the Joint Spectrum Center of the Department of Defense. Uh, the Air Force was involved. The NTIA was involved. Um, and then ultimately, when we felt that we needed to supplement the testing that the Department of Defense was doing, we went to the Aerospace Corporation in El Segundo, California, and we did a series of tests with them. Uh, coincidentally, and this is entirely by coincidence, the aerospace uh, test results and the Joint Spectrum Center uh, test results came out approximately within a week of each other. Uh, those were both submitted to the uh, on the uh, the FCC record, and that really set into motion an analysis by the Joint Spectrum Center to make sure that we had a complete package. Once the, it was determined that we had a complete package, and it was also demonstrated that there would be uh, peaceful coexistence on a non-harmful interference basis, uh, the DOD uh, helped us uh, move this forward with the FCC in, in uh, trying to seek approval. So was there a backup plan in case the, the petition was rejected? Um, you know, we had always had a, a very positive relationship with the FCC. I think that they saw the value of this technology. And by the way, I think the DOD did too. If we couldn't coexist with the DOD in a non-harmful interference way, we would have had to re-engineer the system in order to do so or move to a different area of spectrum. And there were, you know, many things that we could have done in order to do that, but uh, none of them were uh, as as viable as the system that, that we have today. Um, so was there a backup plan? Absolutely. Uh, did we hope that we would ever have to go to our backup plan? Absolutely not. So now that the frequencies are secured, what's the next step? Um, our, our primary goal now is to complete testing sufficient so that we can do first-in-human trials with the system. And what that requires is meeting certain uh, standards that the Federal uh, Food and Drug Administration will require us to meet over the next several months in order to demonstrate that we are ready for first-in-human trials. So that's, that's really the big emphasis right now. The second area of great uh, uh, attention in our uh, organization right now is to identify two things. One is the first area where uh, or me medical indication that we will address or seek to address with the with this, the um, system. The second is to identify with whom we want to do the research. We will undoubtedly work with a clinician, a physician, or several of them in our first effort and identifying not only the effort but also with whom you're doing it are two very important steps. So those are the three things that we're really working on. Any closing remarks or big points about the research and where it's going? The microstimulator system holds tremendous potential to help thousands and thousands of people who suffer from uh, movement disorders. The Dana and Christopher Reeves Foundation uh, a few years back did, did a study where they identified the fact that more than 2% of, of all Americans suffer from some form of paralysis. And if we can provide relief 
to, you know, even a scintilla of that extraordinarily large patient population. Uh, we've done a good job, um, but of course we're not going to stop. We'd like to also take this outside of America uh, when it's appropriate, and, and hopefully the whole world will benefit from what I think is an extraordinary uh, medical technology. All right. Well, David Hinken, thank you very much for your time and for speaking with NASA Vice today. Thank you very much. I appreciate it.